Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Yes, amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City. Uh, it's good to be back with you. It's good to have Susan back, isn't it? Uh, reading the scriptures to us. Although, uh, that does mean that we're done with our series in Psalm 23. I've heard from many of you. Uh, that it's been helpful to you, and that helps me, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, I, know, I know I've heard also that you're sad to see that go. I am too, uh, largely because so much of that psalm is affirming, and uh, it makes us feel good. And of course, when the pastor and the preacher makes you feel good, then you're more likely to make him feel good for making you feel good, and you know how that works, and it kind of goes around and around. Uh, and in the, in the wisdom and providence of God... We've decided to take a screeching left turn and go from talking about uh, our gentle, loving shepherd in Psalm 23 to talking about the seven deadly sins. Uh, and so I don't expect all the warm fuzzies over the next seven weeks that we've had over the past seven, uh, and I'll miss those, to be quite honest. Uh, the reason we're doing this is because Lent begins next Sunday, and Lent is uh, the 40 days before Easter, beginning with Ash Wednesday, which is this coming Wednesday, all the way to... Uh, Easter Sunday. Now, historically, Lent has been used by the church to prepare for the joy and hope of Easter by taking time for self-reflection, for honest and thorough confession of sin and repentance. And so some of the things that we do, just so you can be ready when this happens, is we change our liturgy a little bit. We, we add a confession of sin, which we did this morning, so we began that this morning. We take a little bit more time to, to quietly reflect in our services, think about our hearts, think about our sins. We do communion weekly. We'll do that beginning next week. We'll do it for the six weeks of of Lent, so be ready for that as well. Uh, and, and the reason is because we want to accentuate and highlight this time of the year because we think it's really, really important. And let me explain why by just giving you an analogy, I think, of what, of what the season that we're about to enter into offers us. I, um, I, I'm now, uh, how do I put this? I'm now uh, into my 40s. I have a birthday coming up in a couple weeks. And the reason, I, I have to start saying that, the reason I know that I'm, 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 past just being 40, but I'm actually into my 40s as I'm starting to be in denial about it. And isn't that what signals that, right? And I've heard it's worse in your 50s and your 60s and so on. Um, and so up until about 40, you know this, uh, you go to the doctor pretty much only when you're sick. And so there are years that went by in my 20s and 30s, years, where I, I wouldn't make it to the doctor, and I'd go so long between visits that they would drop me as a patient. And then I would get really, really sick and need to see somebody, and I would call and have to beg and plead, please, will you, will you reestablish me and all, all this sort of thing. But they say that when you hit 40, uh, then, then it really is time for you to start going every year for a physical because things, you know, 
how do you want to say it gently? Things just don't work the way they used to. Uh, you're you're in more you know you're in more spirit you're in more uh, physical um, vulnerability, and so you need to just get a checkup uh, more often. And, and and that really is an analogy that I would use to describe to you what we do in the season of Lent. Lent is a yearly spiritual checkup. That it's a good thing. Historically, the church has said anyway, it's a really good thing for us to, on a yearly basis, take time to probe and to poke and to ask hard questions and to get a spiritual MRI to see what's really going on in there. And so that's what we're going to do for seven weeks starting this week. We're going to talk about uh, each of these seven deadly sins. So you know, do, you know, do you know what I'm referring to when I say that? Pride, lust, greed, gluttony, uh, wrath. I'm not going to get them all off the sloth, all, all this sort of thing. Now, I'll tell you, just for fun, I'm not going to tell you. I, we've decided not to print the schedule because I don't want you looking ahead and saying, I am not going to church on that day. Okay? So, so we're not going to tell you. It's going to be a surprise every week. Because otherwise, uh, the week we do lust, everybody will be here. The week we do greed, no one will come. Because everybody, you know, people are willing to admit most of the time in our culture that they struggle with sexual temptation. Nobody thinks they struggle with greed. Now, if you want even more fun, you ought to check around. We had so much fun in our pastor's meeting. We meet and talk. Uh, We had so much fun watching all the senior pastors dodge the weeks they didn't want to preach on the topic and give it to the people that are the associate pastors in their church. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you don't need to preach on that week. You need to give that one to somebody else. And so you'll see that too as we, as we try to, you know. But don't think, Jonathan's preaching on this. He must really have a problem with that. Or, or you know, or wow, Drew gave that one away. He, you know, that's not good. No, we're, we're just going to play it. We're going to play it by ear. We're going to make it a secret so that you don't know what's coming. Uh, just, just for fun. Now, Robert Murray McShane, who's a Scottish theologian centuries ago, has a famous quote where he says, um, For every look at your sins, take ten looks at Christ. And I think we ought to heed the warning there because we're going to be spending a lot of time looking in our own hearts, doing some introspection. And so be warned of the danger for sure. But I I can't help but wonder as I think about that that statement whether his concern is a little dated. We in our culture today, we don't like to talk about sin. We prefer, if we're going to talk about negative things, even these things we're going to call the seven deadly sins, we, we prefer the word vice because it kind of waters down the force there a little bit. A vice is, is a character flaw. It's a bad habit. It's something that, you, something that you should make a New Year's resolution. But Christianity says no. Uh, the problem with our lives is not that, that we're a little out of whack and we need to kind of retool ourselves or we just need to get to work on a self-improvement project or something like that. No, the problem, the problem with us, according to Christianity, is that we are sinners who have offended God, and we need to be made right with the holy God that made us. So Christianity is about how sinners can be made right with God and then change. In Christianity, uh, you have to deal with your sin. Christianity is the solution to sin. It's not a self-help technique. And so the seven deadly sins have been for centuries a rubric the church has used to help Christians think about the root causes of the sinful and addictive patterns of behavior in their lives. The, core, the very core issue. See, that's what we're going at here. If you think about it as a tree, uh, we're going to talk about some of the root causes and then really focus on the trunk of the tree that, that you know, of course, from there come the branches of all the different things that we might struggle with in our life. But, but what is the trunk? What are the, what are the core issues? What is the why? And what the church has said is that the why of every struggle, of every sin struggle in your life, comes back to one of these seven vices, one of these seven sins. And so each week we're going to take one as a topic, 
what we're going to do is we're going to contrast it to one of the Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because Augustine, Osginus, Peter Kreef, others, many Christian ethicists have done this. And so there's a historical precedent, and that's going to be our procedure. Okay, so this morning uh, we begin with pride because that is where all sin begins. And the corresponding Beatitude, you might be able to guess, would be blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And so in the scriptures, the proud and the poor in spirit are always contrasted with one another. And that's exactly what you have here in this chapter, in this, in this, uh, in this parable here in Luke 18. And so let's look here together. And we're going to look at this. This is really going to be, if you see the outline I gave you, this is what we're going to do every week. We're going we're to talk about one of these different issues along these four headings. So we should have the four, same four points of the sermon every week during the series. We want to first define uh, what, what the vice is, what the sin is. So what is pride? Secondly, we want, to, we want to get underneath that a little bit because, see, it's not enough to just say, here's this thing I'm struggling with. We really have to become people who can understand, okay, what is the power behind it? Where does, where does it really come from? So not only what is pride, but what's its source? Where does it come from? Where, where's, the, where, where's the root system uh, that is maybe invisible in my life that's causing these things to happen? Thirdly, so once we define and once we see the source, we want to talk about the solution because here's what we believe. And this is, okay, I'm warning, this is an amen moment. You ready? You ready for it? You guys with me? Here, here it is, uh, that the gospel beats sin every time. The gospel is the power to come into your life to beat sin. And so we want to see the solution. There's a gospel solution. And, we want, and we, want to, we want to focus on Jesus and see the solution. And then lastly, because what we're ultimately after is change. So we want to do just that. Define, look at the source, really pay attention to the solution in the gospel so that ultimately we can, we can come to the change that we want. Okay, does that make sense? So that's kind of the, the rubric we're following in, the, in this sermon series. So let's just talk about pride this morning from this text in Luke 18. And let's start with a definition. What is pride? Uh, we start with pride because it is the greatest sin. It is the sin that leads to every other sin, uh, and th- this is at least what Christianity has historically affirmed, and we need to affirm it as well, because the moral philosophies that are being written today, if you can imagine it, they, they even question whether we should consider pride a sin at all. As part of my preparation for this series, I'm reading a series of books published by Oxford University Press in the New York Public Library because I'm fascinated uh, by, by it. These are, these are non-Christian people who are writing about these very Christian ideas, and it's just fascinating to me. And in the book, in the series on pride, in the very first chapter of the book, and this should be telling to where our culture is, is kind of leaning, the very first chapter of the book on pride, uh, the chapter is entitled, The Virtuous Vice. And the question the author raises is, is pride a good thing or is it a bad thing? And, and what he does is he, he references Aristotle's notion of what, what he called proper pride. In other words, Aristotle believed that, that every virtue was always a golden mean between both excess and deficit. So you had to find the middle ground. In other words, too much pride, of course, is vanity, and that's bad. Too little, it's what he called humility. It's interesting that he used humility in a negative sense. Uh, and he said, you know, that's not good either. But right in the middle, there's a pride that is actually a virtue. And so you shouldn't think too highly of yourself. And... You know, you shouldn't think too little of yourself either. Uh, you know, but what is interesting in our culture is that no one seems to be concerned about the first. But you hear all the time people trying to meditate and think about the last, the, the latter, don't you? We hear all the time how damaging, you know, chronic low self-esteem is. The problem with most people is that they don't think 
uh, highly enough about themselves. They need more pride. And the Christian position in this, of course, is that this is all wrong. That pride is not a virtue. It is the root of all vice. It is always the first sin in all of the lists of the seven deadly sins because it is the greatest sin of all. Now, no offense to Aristotle, and you ought to be really careful to disagree with him. He's a pretty, pretty smart guy. But no offense to Aristotle. But the text here that we have in Luke 18 does not give us two extremes as negative examples to help us find the proper balance. It gives us an example in the Pharisee of pride and an example in the tax collector of humility, and it tells us that one is the doorway to hell and the other is the doorway to eternal life. So the problem is not that some of us think too little of ourselves and that others think too much of ourselves. The problem is that we all think about ourselves too much. And that's an important distinction to make. Listen, else we are in danger of looking at the Pharisee in the story. Look at him, isn't it? Look at this guy. We're, we're, we're very much in danger of looking at the Pharisee in the story saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. And to come away from looking at him saying to ourselves, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that Pharisee. I mean, he's really the worst, isn't he? He's smug, condescending. I mean, it's yuck. The point is that this is only one form of pride, that you can be self-exalting, self-promoting, and self-justifying like this Pharisee because you're proud. However, you can also be self-deprecating, self-demoting, and self-loathing because you're proud. The issue is not what you think about yourself. The issue is how often you think about yourself and how strategically and how energetically you make sure that everyone else is thinking about you too. There's an old Groucho Marx uh, bit where he is talking with a friend and he can't just, he kind of is just going on and on and on about himself and then he kind of catches himself in the middle of the bit and he says, oh, I'm so sorry, I've been talking too much. Let's talk about you. Hey, what about you? What do you think of me? <laughs> you, you know, and it's funny. It's funny, but that really is, that really is what you have here, that that pride is that. It's that self-fascination, and it takes many forms. It's not just self-righteousness. It's also self-pity. Both words begin with what word? Self. So the starting point for pride is always self. Pride is persistent self-focus. Uh, one writer put it this way, and this really caught me, because I'm, I'm prone to do this. And so if this, is, if this is you, be careful here. One writer that I read this week said, the hellbound... Do not travel downward, they travel inward. Self-preoccupation. Self-fixation. That is the root of, of all sin, and particularly the sin of pride. You see, the first and greatest commandment is to have no other gods before Yahweh, but to love Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. So pride is putting the self before God. It's loving the self with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's pushing God out of the center of all things and, and taking his place. It's wanting to be God in God's place. And so you see there's something very unique here in all of the other sins that we'll talk about throughout this series. We're trying to get away from God, but pride is the attempt to get above him. You've probably heard something like this. What's the difference between God and you? God doesn't think he's you. Did I, do I need to say that again? That was kind of slow in landing on you guys. 
What's the difference between God and you? He doesn't think he's you. Pride is the desire of the heart to contend with God and with everybody else for supremacy. It is, it is a lust for power. Another way to say this is that pride is necessarily competitive. Uh, this is what C.S. Lewis said, and everybody who writes, everybody in the last 50 years who writes about pride that you can read references his little chapter in Mere Christianity where he says pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. He says, we say, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're only proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. And this is clear in the text, isn't it? In the characterization of this Pharisee who, look there, verse 11, standing by himself. That is, to stand out in the crowd, to distinguish himself from everybody else. He prays, verse 11, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Now, let me translate that for you. It's something like this. Life is a game to see who can be the best, and I am winning. And it's a game that we all play. We all play. Now, so this is what pride is. And I don't need to spend, we talk about this a lot, so I don't need to spend a lot of time. But I want to uh, put, your, put your focus on two applications of this definition here at the very beginning. Two applications to identify so you can start to think about where this might come out in your life. Uh, particularly from the text. The first is a word that appears in the early list of the seven deadly sins. There actually were eight to begin with because pride and uh, this, this, alongside of pride, uh, you see the word vainglory, a particular manifestation of pride, uh, what the ancient Christian uh, thinkers called vainglory. So pride leads to vainglory. That's the first thing. And vainglory is an excessive and disordered desire for recognition and the approval of others. And this describes this Pharisee perfectly. He is not content to be superior to everybody else. He already knows that. He came into this whole thing knowing that he was the best, but he's not content to just be superior. He needs everybody else to know how superior he really is. And so he comes and he prays out loud so that everyone can hear what a great guy he is. He makes a show. I mean, pride wants to be number one. Vainglory is a subset of pride that wants to hold up, you know, hold up yourself. It wants to hold up the trophy on stage in front of everyone else and, and give an acceptance speech. I mean, that's what the Pharisee's prayer is. This is it, it, it's, it isn't really a prayer, really. It's, it's, if it is, it's the worst prayer anybody's ever prayed. What he's doing here, this is his acceptance, acceptance speech for Best Guy in the World Award. And that's vainglory. Vainglory is... Is wanting to do that. It's wanting to. It's wanting to to publicly announce your greatness for everyone else to see and to bow before. Uh, and it's sure evidence that you have a problem with pride. It is an excessive and disordered desire for attention, for approval, for recognition, either by trying to be admired for inappropriate and superficial things, which makes it excessive and inordinate, or by taking inappropriate, desperate measures to ensure you're not being overlooked by other people. So be careful. I just need to tell you, be careful in an age of social media of making everything public. Jesus warns of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them. He says it's deadly. 
But not only vainglory, you also see vainglory is a sure sign that there's a problem with pride, but also, uh, look in verse 9, but also contempt for other people. Proud people treat others with contempt. And the Pharisees an illustration of this too. And so if pride is an attack on the first and greatest commandment to love God with everything ahead of everything else, it's also an attack on the second great commandment to love your neighbor ahead of yourself. And contempt is what you see here. It's condescending, it's dismissive, it's sharp, it's mean. Are you any of those things? If so, think back through, where is it exposing your pride? Now, let's keep going. Why, then, was the Pharisee like this, and why are we? We've defined pride, but we, uh, we need to go a little deeper and investigate what's underneath the surface. Where does this come from? What's the sin underneath the sin of pride? And, they, and the text answers this question as well, not in the parable, but in Luke's theological introduction. Jesus, we're told in verse 9, has a very specific uh, purpose in using this parable. Do you see there? He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So pride is founded, we're told here, on unbelief. It's based on a lie that the kingdom of heaven is a meritocracy. Uh, This Pharisee believed that salvation was uh, his doing, that he believed in salvation by works and not by grace. And, And this is why things went wrong in his life the way they did. This is why he goes over his spiritual resume. I fast twice a week, he says, not once. But twice, I mean, he's saying, I go over and above. I do more than I'm required to do. I give tithes of all that I get there, verse 11, because this is his hope. And it's an illustration of those who trust in themselves that they're righteous. He, he's acting here like he's at a job interview because in his mind he is. Life is always a job interview. And at issue is that word there in verse 9, rightness, righteousness. It means to be right. It means to be right with God. It means to be right with others, to be right with yourself. And I just wonder, if you're here, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, do you know your heart longs for righteousness? You need a righteousness. Whether you're religious or irreligious, you're looking for rightness. It just matters. What matters is where you're looking for it. Because you see this Pharisee, he believed that rightness was a game and not a gift. He believed that the righteousness that is heart needed that the power and the goodness to achieve it were within himself it was a game and every game has a winner and a loser and he was winning and that's why he acted the way he did now pride does this pride looks at all of life and it says i i did it i did it and now i'm do it i did it and now i'm do it and isn't that exactly what the pharisee says and this is how he understands even salvation he says i did it And now I'm do it. Look at my record, he says, and look at that guy's record. Put us side by side. I, I have definitely earned something from God, and he definitely has not. And and this, this attitude of I've done it, and now I'm do it, this is why, if you've ever wondered, I wonder, um, but this is why religion makes people arrogant, not humble. Have Have you ever wondered that? I mean, it increases our self preoccupation. That's the irony. And so here's the lesson. If you believe that rightness comes from within, then where are you always going to be looking? That's not a rhetorical question. Interact with me a little bit. If you believe, if you believe that rightness comes from within and you need it desperately, where are you always going to be looking? In, at yourself. Doesn't it make sense? 
I mean, if you believe that rightness is what you do, then you're always going to be evaluating how you're doing. And the only way to evaluate how you're doing is to always be evaluating how you're doing against how everyone else is doing. So you'll always be feeling like you're winning or losing. Anybody there? Does it feel like your whole life is a game of shoots and ladders? You climb, 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 and one misstep, and you're all the way back down to the bottom. But what I know is there's always this sense of I'm winning or I'm losing. In every social situation, I'm with people that I'm either beating or I'm trailing. That that's where your sense of identity comes from. And then, so if you feel like you're winning, then your life is full of self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-justification. And if you feel like you're losing, you're full of self-pity, self-deprecation, which is a mask for pride, self condemnation but it's always self see self is in all of those things so if you believe that salvation is up to you you won't be able to stop thinking about yourself but but don't you want to is anybody with me aren't you tired of always thinking about yourself isn't it exhausting and so what's the solution how does the gospel beat pride because this is what we're after in the series more than just confession uh, we're after repentance and change and, and spiritual power for newness of life. I, I, I hear people all the time excuse their sin by saying, well, that's just me. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, you know, people will tell me all the time, that's just me. He said, well, maybe you need a new you. You know, I had somebody who'd really hurt my feelings recently in a friendship, and I, I confronted him and just told him about the heartache that I felt, and he basically just said, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm a terrible friend. And I was like, and? Oh, okay, well, it's good to know where I stand. We need something more than just confession. Christians don't just confess sin. They, they repent. They change. And here, please hear me. Christianity doesn't just help you make peace with the real you. Christianity is the offer of a new you. And in that chapter of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that pride is competitive. That's the problem. And so... Once the element of competition is gone, then pride is gone. So what takes away the element of competition? See, that's what we need. We need to get this element of competition out of this whole thing. And the answer is ultimately what we learn in Jesus' parable here. It's grace. Righteousness, we're told, is not a game you win. It's a gift that you receive. And this is what the tax collector understands that the Pharisee does not. The tax collector has spiritual insight here that still escapes the Pharisee, which is ironic. And this is why, verse 14, we're told that he goes home justified and the Pharisee does not. Now, that's the same word as in verse 9, and it's what the parable is about. When you see it at the beginning and when you see it at the end, it means everything in the middle is, is it's the theme of everything that's there. So the parable here is about righteousness. How do you get righteousness? And how you answer that question will determine whether you are more like the Pharisee or more like the tax collector. Because you see, the Pharisee's solution to his need for righteousness was his good works for God. The tax collector's solution to his sin was God's good work for him. Very different. The Pharisee looked within himself for strength and goodness, and that's what religious people do. That's what they believe. That's why sometimes religion makes people worse because it increases their pride. They become more self-obsessed. The tax collector, however, he was under no such delusion. He knew better than to try to look within. He knew there was nothing, he knew there was nothing in there uh, that could help him whatsoever. He, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, we're told, so great was his shame. He, uh, he had no spiritual resume like the Pharisee did. He had no litany of things that he could go through that he would hope that other people would be impressed with. Uh, 
He beat his breast. Do you see this? Look there. He beat his breast, the text says. And that's a, that's a symbol. of. It's, it's almost as if he's saying he's trying to get at his heart. He's saying this heart of mine right here, that's the problem. And if I could reach in there and rip it out of my chest, I would. This man knew that good works could not save him because without a new heart, any good works he might muster would be full of the same pride and selfishness and thus no good at all. And so look, he had only one hope. He had only one hope. Verse 13. And it's that God would be merciful. Be merciful to me, a sinner, he he cries. It's the only thing he can muster. And the translation here really in the ASV is unfortunate. The word is very specific. It means this. He has really great spiritual insight here. He's saying, God, atone for my sins. It's the word, if you're familiar with theological language, uh, God propitiate me is what he's saying. It's the same word as in uh, Romans 3.25 where we read that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation for our sins by his blood. And so here is where we must understand the setting of the parable to understand what's happening here. The Pharisee and the tax collector have come up to the temple to pray, we're told in verse 10. It's presumably either during the evening or the morning sacrifice. And it was something like a worship service that would be happening there. Uh, the, the priest would conduct a service. There would be readings like we have. There would be prayers. The people would have times of silent meditation and so forth. And the climax of the service there in the temple would have been uh, a sacrifice. A lamb would have been brought out. And the priest would have taken hold of the lamb and he would have put his, his, um, he would have put his, head, his hand on the, the, the head of the lamb and, and confess his sins and the sins of the people over the lamb. And it was a symbolic uh, ritual of the transference of the guilt of both the priest and the people to the substitute. And then he would slash the lamb's throat and the blood would begin to flow and the atoning sacrifice would be, would be made and sin would be propitiated. The death of the substitute, the lamb, in the place of the sinners gathered there. And in the middle of all of that that's happening... The tax collector's crying out to God, and he's saying, let that, let that be for me. That's got to be for me. That's my only hope. That is the death that I deserve because of my sins, but show mercy and accept the sacrifice instead. That's what's happening. And of course, this is a picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God to which all the lambs slain in the temple pointed. And according to the prophet Isaiah... God laid our sins upon him and he died to give us life. He became our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that good news? And it means this, that righteousness is not from me. It's not in me. It's in him. I'm not right if I'm beating you. You're not right if you're beating me. The only way we're right is if we're in him. And if we're in him, then we're all on the same level. There's no ranking system you know, there's no, you can't, you can't go on, you know, the, the church doesn't have a website of ranking every Christian as far as how you're doing in your Christian life. So you can always know where you stand. I'm number 47 of 253. Man, 46 people I hate. You know? There's no ranking system. We're either in Christ or we're not in Christ. That's the only categories. And that is the solution to pride. What the tax collector knows that the Pharisee does not. Look at his prayer again. He says two things. I'm a sinner, and God is merciful. 
You want to be free from your constant self-evaluation? You have to know that you've done nothing, that you deserve nothing but judgment because of your sins, and at the same time, you have to know that you're an object of his mercy, that he loves you, that you're justified, but only because of Jesus Christ. You have to know both those things. If you only see one and not the other, it won't heal you, but you have to know both. I'm a sinner, I've done nothing, I'm do nothing, and yet God is merciful in Jesus Christ to me, and all of life is grace. See, a religious person thinks righteousness comes from within, so she's always looking in. She can't stop thinking about herself. But a Christian knows that righteousness comes from the outside, not from within, from God's work for him and not his work for God. And so religion is like miracle grow for pride because you're always staring in the mirror to see how you're doing. But the gospel is the opposite. Do you know the gospel, the, 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 um, the exhortation of the gospel, you know what it is? Look to Jesus. A Christian is a person who stops thinking about themselves so much because they can't get over Jesus. And that's the solution to pride. Look to Jesus. That's what faith is, which is why faith, not religion, but true saving faith always leads to humility, and that's where we finish. Let's just finish very quickly there because I've said the beatitude that, that corresponds with pride is Matthew 5 3 blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now what does it mean to be poor in spirit it means I mean the Pharisee the, the, the Pharisee is not an example of this the tax collector is and like this tax collector it means that you've run out of self that there's no self left there's no self-confidence, no self-righteousness, no self-promotion, no self-pity, no self-preoccupation. A person who is poor in spirit has come to an end of themselves. They know their problems are too big for them to fix on their own, and so they've just stopped trying. And instead, they're fascinated with Jesus' sufficiency and not their lack. So we've come to Tim Keller's brilliant, I think. He really stole it, so it's probably more C.S. Lewis, but I quote him too much, so I thought I would go with Tim Keller there. But Brilliant definition of humility. And he just defines it this way. He says it's self-forgetfulness. The true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less because you're thinking about Jesus more and more. Your gaze is being drawn more and more away from you, from your performance, from the good and the bad that you do, and toward him, toward his beautiful life of obedience to the Father and love for others, to his cross, to his resurrection, to his ascension, and to his coming again, all of which are the hope of the gospel. Self-forgetfulness like that is a virtue it's a uniquely Christian virtue, and so it's the ability to be with people and not be thinking about yourself so that you can actually love them, listen to them. It's the ability to watch someone do some, something really great and be excited and celebrate it and not feel like it's an indictment of you that somehow you've not done something you should have done. It's, it's the ability, it's powerful to work hard at putting on an event. Has this ever happened to you? You work hard, you put on this event, and the MC gets up there, and they and they and their long list of people to thank, and they thank everybody except you. Can you imagine experiencing that and not bother you at all? Nobody lives like that. Nobody lives like that. So listen to Tim Keller. He says, "True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself." As a self-forgetful person, I would not be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It wouldn't devastate me. It wouldn't keep me up at night. I could, I could be someone who doesn't lust for recognition nor shies away from it. The kind of person who, when they see themselves in the mirror, doesn't admire what they see but doesn't cringe either. 
This is what the gospel makes possible. And this is the cure for all the other sins on the list. Think about it. Envy, which we'll talk about next week, is being so full of self that you're actually pained by someone else's successes. Gluttony. Gluttony is not being able to say no to yourself. Sloth is being so self-absorbed and addicted to comfort that you're indifferent to what others need from you and you're lazy. So do you see the problem itself? We need a way for self to stop running our lives. And the solution is the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Not religion, the gospel. I have done nothing. I am do nothing. I'm a sinner. That's the only thing I am. But God is merciful to me in Jesus Christ. All of life is grace. That is the undoing of pride. But let me say this, and let me finish. This doesn't leave us without work to do. The text ends with an admonition. Do you see that in verse 14? Don't miss the admonition where he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, and then, and then comes the admonition. For everyone who humbles himself will be uh, exalted, but the one who exalts himself will be humbled, or the other way around. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what does that mean? Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He said, God creates everything out of nothing, and therefore everyone which God is to use, he first must reduce to nothing. God works against pride wherever he finds it in you. Do you want to know? Do you want to know one of the reasons? If you're going through a really hard time in your life right now and you're mad at God about it and you wonder why would you be doing this, one of the reasons you can be confident that God is doing whatever he's doing in your life is he's going after the pride that is killing you. Don't fight him. Be grateful that he's doing that. But here's the thing. Humility is also a shy virtue. And by that I mean if you ever become humble, do you know what the first thing that happens in your heart is? If you ever really do achieve humility, the first thing that happens is you immediately start to think, wow, look at me, I'm humble. Isn't that great? Which, of course, is right back to pride. And so what the text says and what the Bible says is that the only way to get humility is to not wait around for it to just happen to you. You have to humble yourself. Do you see that? The one who humbles himself. In other words, you have to, you have to displace pride by intentionally, intentionally moving towards places of humility. Because you believe that's where God shows up. You intentionally forsake comfort and, you know ease and whatnot, and you intentionally move towards the hard place, towards the low seat at the table, because that is where you find grace. That's where you find God. Now, Jeremy Taylor, and I, I want to end, because I, I want to I really end every time we can with, with some really practical things, because we really are trying to go after this in our lives. And so if you think about humility, Jeremy Taylor, who was a 17th century Anglican bishop, wrote a book called The Rule and Exercise of Holy Living. It wouldn't be a bestseller today. We don't write books like this anymore. And he just contain, it, the book contains a number of strategies about how, how do you humble yourself. And so here's just ten ways of how you can humble yourself. It's just, I'm going to rattle them off. He says a few things. Uh, he says, number one, be more suspicious of yourself than you are of others. Number two, when you talk about yourself, talk more about your sins than your successes. When you talk about other people, talk more about their successes than their sins. I'm so exhausted of going to Christian funerals and they don't talk about people's sin. You ought to talk about your sin. You ought to make sure people talk about your sin at your funeral. Because you're a sinner. The beauty is that God loves somebody like you. So when you talk about yourself, talk about your sin more than you talk about your successes. But when you're talking about others, 
Always talk more about their successes than their sins. Third, number three, love to be concealed. These are his words. Listen to this. Love to be concealed and little esteemed. Love to be concealed. Be content to lack praise from others. In other words, avoid the spotlight. Be a stagehand and not the lead. Race people to the low pace. Four, if someone criticizes you, he says, don't rush to correct them. Let people believe it to be true of you. What? What? He says, because the truth is that you're far worse, that you're far more sinful than any criticism could accuse you of being, and you know that. The harsh words of an enemy, these are his words, the harsh word of an enemy is a better monitor. They more accurately represent the truth about you than the kind and flattering words of a friend. Five, when you really blow it, (laughs) this is how he puts it, when you really blow it, don't get a private theater and flatterers in whose vain noises and fantastic praises you might keep your good opinion of yourself. Six, never try to explain or excuse your sin. Just repent. Seven, don't use stratagems and devices to be praised. Don't fish for compliments. Don't exaggerate how hard things are so that people will pay attention to you. Eight, stop comparing yourselves to others. Nine, thank God for your weaknesses. Look to them as gifts to help you resist pride and nurse humility. And ten, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. So we read in Peter, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, for he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen? Let's pray. Can we pray? So Father, we confess to you to that what you say is true of us is indeed true. We are proud people. Now, it looks different in all of us. In some of us, it looks much like this Pharisee, and in others, it looks much different, but it's the same thing. We are, we are completely obsessed with ourselves, and so we desperately need you to come and work in our lives in such a way that you would dethrone self from, from us, that you would help us and work in us powerfully by your gospel, that we might become self-forgetful people. Because that is, that, is, uh, the, that is the overthrowing of the very deepest part of what's wrong in our hearts. And it would make us a community of people who would love one another beautifully. And that's we really do desire that, how we sin against one another in our pride. Not only do we sin against you and contend for supremacy with you, but oh, we do it to one another all the time, constantly doing it. Looking, looking to get ahead of one another and we sin greatly against one another and there's much damage caused in the body of Christ because of it. And so, Father, we plead and beg for you. Would you come and work in us to change us, to make us humble, even without our knowing it, because if we knew it, we would immediately not be humble. And so as we sing uh, now, make this, make this the prayer of our hearts, that we know that in this moment before you this morning, we have no hope except that you're a God of mercy. And so the cry that escapes our lips is the very cry of the, of the, of the, of the tax collector there in the temple, God have mercy. We cry, mercy, have mercy, Lord, on me, a sinner. That is the hope that we find in the gospel. So help us to pray just that. Uh, Even as we sing now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The promise of this benediction is just this, that you don't have to have your eyes on your life all the time because you have a God and Father in heaven who has turned his eyes towards you. His eyes, his gaze is set upon you. He's looking out for you. You don't have to look out for yourself. 
He has made every provision that you need for this coming week. You don't have to make any. And so lift your, lift your eyes up to him. Hear the words of this benediction. And if you lift your eyes up to him in faith, you'll never look down on anyone ever again. So receive the promise of this benediction, of his face turned towards you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.